time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. Welcome to the Cold War, episode 245. Right. Ray, I have, I have uh, one question I want to really start off this episode with. Sure. Was sure. it you? Right. Be honest now. Okay. Be honest. Right. Was it you? Who gave Mitch McConnell the gummies before he went in front of the cameras? I want, I want to know. Right, right. You're half right. You're half. I think Mitch right. McConnell is high he's, as a motherfucker. A, let's just say he's been getting mail packages from Vance Global lately. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Never been happier. Um, he and I were talking, and uh, I had to excuse myself for a minute. I came back and I looked in my bag, and my gummies were gone. Son of a bitch, Mitch! And but mm. it was too late. He was out there. I couldn't. It's not like I could dive and tackle him because he was already in front of the reporters. Mm. So I'm like, you know so what? You call him yeah. Mitch the bitch. Mitch the bitch. I'm just gonna let this play out. I'm just gonna let this play mm. out. And I mm. just mm. popped a gummy myself and I watched him. Well, I remember the last time you and I were hanging out with Mitch the bitch. You right. were telling him then very clearly yes. half of a gummy at <laughs> your age, Mitch. You're, you're 81. Fractions. Fractions yeah, is your is your friend. Fractions it's a 10 milli- It's a 10 milligram gummy. You, you, you don't want to take more than five, particularly if, yeah, like, if it's yeah. late at night, Mitch. Right. And, like, oh, you know, no. you're kicking back, kick yes. the shoes off. Yeah. Got a, 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 you yeah. know, an underage girl on your on your dick bobbing up yeah. and down, one of the right. interns. As, as you do. Yeah. And you go, got a go late the full morning. 10 mil- yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go got the, a late morning the, the next day. Yeah. Go the full 10 MGs. Yeah. yeah. Milligrams over there. Right. Right. But. Middle of the day, press conference, no, no, not, no more than five, Mitch. Not, not no cool. Not cool. <laughs> like, so, um, well, congratulations re- on that. You've, you've provided yeah. me lots of entertainment with that. And the other thing I want to congratulate you on is your okay. absolutely stellar, mm-hmm. stellar work, impressive, mm-hmm. impressive work Thank you. on our new Cold War TikTok account that I set up a couple of weeks ago. Um <laughs> Fantastic job that you've done producing absolutely zero content for it in the last couple of weeks. One, I sent you a video two days ago. Did you not get it? You sent me a video? No. It's it's a long story. The idea of giving you admin access to it is you upload it by yourself. I get that, but I didn't want to. So Uh, mm -hmm. I will have to find said video. I didn't get any video i didn't i got gummies maybe you sent the video to mitch mcconnell <laughs> oh shit oh my god he got my body joke about cold war history and you got the gummies oh i fucked that up i think i was high when i mailed him out that's probably mm. what it was i apologize yeah. to both of you and to america you know how to tell you know how i tell if you're high oh your eyes oh. are open yeah, well, you're, 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 your heart's beating. <laughs> just, so if you're saying, awake, you're high. Yeah, yeah, pretty, pretty much, pretty much. Well, let's. We're still talking about Iran, uh, boys yes. and girls. Um, so it's gonna get good. It's gonna get good. At the at, at the end of our last episode, uh, yes. two forty four. Yes, we talked about 
there was this um, big uh, protest happening in Tehran. Damn right. 1906. Um, people were holed up in the British Embassy. And there was there was bits of violence. There was lots of things going on, but eventually, yeah, uh, it was it was agreed by the Shah that they could set up their first democratic assembly, Damn uh, right. the Majlis, and mm-hmm. they developed their first constitution, draft constitution based on Belgium's, which was considered one of the most progressive in the world at the time. Wow. And then on the 7th of October, 1906, they had their first democratic assembly to set up their first parliament, the Majlis. And this, as I said at the end of the last episode, was two years before the discovery of oil in the country, which would obviously change everything. But it was also only two months before the Shah, Muzaffar al-Din Shah, died. And they knew he was sick at the time. Yeah. And they were rushing this whole process through because his successor, the crown prince, mm-hmm. Muhammad Ali, fight like a butterfly, sting like a bee, was his catchphrase. <laughs> Bite like a butterfly? Fly like a butterfly? Fly like a butterfly. Yeah, yeah. Mm. whatever. Affin- uh, yeah. Muhammad, so- <laughs> Muhammad Ali. I fly like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Muhammad. Muhammad, Muhammad Ali. Ali. Was yeah, that a song? It was a song is, like in the 70s, is, right? It is now. I have no idea. I've never heard that before, but it was catchy really? as hell. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't heard that since the 70s. It's in my brain somewhere. That's a real. That oh, that's, was a real thing. I'm going to look that up. Okay. Muhammad Ali was known to be vehemently against the idea of democracy. Yes. So the yes. Majlis had to try and hurry to push this through before Daddy Shah died <laughs> and Baby Shah uh, took over. Right. And they did. They they met. Uh, it was far from perfect because, after all, and I do not mean any disrespect, do not come after me. A lot of these people were uneducated because that's one of the problems with uh, Persia at this time. Obviously, they're inexperienced. They don't have set political parties. They don't have voting blocks. They don't exactly know how to divide up the responsibilities of the government. But they met, and they met quickly because, as you said, daddy's dying. Son's about to take over. Son is not very happy, and but still... And I think we might have finished the last show on this, December 30th, 1906. The Constitution of Persia is, was adopted. It is a done thing. The Majlis, uh, if I'm saying that right, have finally, you know, after hundreds of years, have got what they want. Hopefully this is going to be a functioning, to some degree, democracy, which will begin to pull the people out of their very impressive poverty. Now, uh, Daddy Shah... Yeah, Mozaffa Al Din Shah was only right. was only yeah. fifty three when he died. Well, third of January nineteen hundred seven. See, see, I know where you're going, but no, if you had seventeen hundred wives, you wouldn't make it to sixty either. I think science will bear that out in a good way or a bad way. I don't know, but it takes a toll. He'd only been on the throne for ten years uh, right. when he died, so yeah. Crown Prince for 35 years, on the throne for 10, a little bit less actually, nine years, and that's it. He's done. Uh, Done done and dusted. (laughs) So they they have their parliament um, rushed through, as you said, a bit of a mess, and as soon as Baby Shah, Muhammad Ali Shah, (laughs) took over, he just went after it 
like uh, you know a dog oh, after yeah. a rabbit. You know, he right. he ridiculed it. He ignored it. There were lots of clashes between the supporters of the Majlis and the supporters right. of the Shah. Literal clashes. Then the mullahs, the religious yes. leaders, who were initially supportive of the reforms that the right. Majlis wanted to push through, yeah. began to get worried that it was going too far. And this this is a common theme. You know, we talked about this in our Afghanistan shows about the Soviet intervention in Afghanistan in 79. Right. Right. It's the same thing in Iran with the religious leaders. Like the religious leaders like a bit of reform, but <clears throat> they don't want too much reform. Yeah, a taste. Just give me, just wet my beak, if I may. And it it also reminds me of the sto- the shows that we've done about um, the Christian churches aligning themselves with the business leaders in the United States. Yes, in the 30s, 40s, 20s and 50s, 50s exactly. against exactly. against socialism. Yes. So the same reason the 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 Christian church leaders in America didn't like socialism in the 20th century is the same reason why the mullahs <laughs> in Iran right. and in Afghanistan didn't like socialist reform. Yeah, like we want the people to be better off. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely, yes, sir. But, but as soon as you start talking about secular <clears throat> government, secular education, yeah. women mm. don't have to wear veils. Mm. Uh, that's that's a step too far. We we don't want that much yes. freedom. A little bit of right. freedom is okay. No, too much freedom. I don't want them to have that much freedom. I'm good. Yeah, I, I'm a religious guy. I'm, I don't want them to be able yeah, to tell. They're me not no. ready for it. No, they're not ready for freedom. No, no. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> Uh, if I could real quick, the next part that we're about to go into, you have to give Muhammad Ali, that sounds so weird to say, credit because his father is the one who got shellacked when the clerics and the secular reformers got together, as we said last time, that was just a powerful force, too powerful for even the Shah to stand up to. So here's Muhammad Ali, who's very young, but he's been around for a while and he's seen what happened to his father. And he's like, you know, I need to drive a wedge in between these two very powerful, normally don't get along forces. So what I need to do is not be a common enemy, pick one side or the other, or whatever, or at least drive a wedge. And that's what he begins to do. And he, you know, does a pretty, or his his agents do a very good job. Can you have a free people without freedom of religion? Right. Uh, um, I would I would argue not. I would say fuck no, but please continue. Fuck no. Hmm. Fuck no. You know who else agreed with the mullahs? About too much freedom is not a good thing. Uh, the British, the British, <laughs> the British, and the Russians uh, didn't like the idea of right. the people having freedom in Iran. I'm sorry. Before we, I, I, before you go on, because you're going to make some very valid points, I have to ask you to stop for a second. If I could just give a couple of lines from mm. the religious people it's not because a couple of lines. This that too, because this is stuff, and I say this with no pride, some of their sentiments you can hear in America today, because some of this stuff, power, the the struggle of power, the division of power, who should have power, who should not, 
is is an ongoing thing. It, it's it's something that never stops. It just takes it just takes many forms. So some of the um some of the mullahs when it when it comes to um, legalizing secular schools, one of them was asking, "Will entry into them not lead to the overthrow of Islam? Will lessons in foreign languages and the study of chemistry and physics not weaken the student's faith?" As in, the more you know, the less you believe, because you can base your real philosophy or your real idea of living on facts and science and how the world really works versus something that was made up thousands of years ago. Um, And then there was another person who said something like, it is not advisable for the government of Iran to be constitutional. For in constitutional government, all things are free. And in this case, there must also be freedom of religion. Certain persons will insist upon religious freedom, which is contrary to the interests of Islam. Well, first of all, duh, no shit. And second of all, they're, they're pretty much just saying the more you educate, the more people know, the less they're likely to believe in something that's a pretty hard sell in the first place unless you abandon all logical thought and just go with the idea of faith. And so they have these legitimate concerns. And let's not and let's be brutally, brutally honest here. At the end of the day, what they're really saying is I could be out of a job. This affects my pocketbook, and I would have to go out and get a real job. And I don't know if you know this or not, Cam, but because you're a podcaster, real jobs suck ass. So they don't want to have to go out and get a real job. They like their power. They like having the Mm. prestige of being a religious person. Mm. And they're like, this is not good. This is not good for Mm. us, so it's not good for me. Exactly. I'm done now. I'm done. I just thought that was interesting. What's in it for me? Exactly. Yeah. What have you done for me lately? Mm. Uh, That's the second time you've mentioned Janet Jackson in this episode. (laughs) Love me some Janet. Well, parts of her, but all of her too at the same time. It's complicated. Just the the two. (laughs) So the British, the British, I believe, is where you. Yeah, the British and the Russians. Mm -hmm. The last thing they wanted was for people to have a say in how Iran was run. Yeah, because yeah, like hold on, I don't think you understand what's going on here. <laughs> We're raping and pillaging this country. And it, it. It, it, don't get me wrong, but uh, if the people get a say, yeah, won't they maybe say no, no, no. to the rape and the pillage? No rape, no pillage. <laughs> what happens money? to the rape and pillage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's why we I'm like here. the rape and pillage. That's why. That was, yeah, exactly. That was the selling point on the brochure: rape the and raping. pillage. That's why I came. They preferred a stable puppet government that yes. was weak, that yes. they could, you know, manipulate to give them foreign concessions and support their strategic role in the region. Yeah. In nineteen oh seven, in August of nineteen oh seven, the the British and the Russians actually got together and signed the Anglo-Russian Convention of nineteen oh seven, aka. The convention between the United Kingdom and Russia relating to Persia, Afghanistan, and Tibet. So basically, they got together. I think it was in Moscow, and they, you know, they basically figured out between themselves how they were going to control this region. Yes, yes. Partly to outflank the Germans, because the Germans were. Threatening at the time to connect Berlin to Baghdad with a new railroad oh. that could potentially align the Ottoman Empire with Imperial Germany. 
Yeah. British and the, the Russians didn't like the sound of that, not for a second. New. Uh, so they they wanted to basically lock down this region for themselves. And they, they'd been fighting over, you know, who, who had the most power in these regions. Right. And so they were like, okay, let's get together. <laughs> enemy of my enemy is my friend. Absolutely. Right? So Absolutely. We Look, we both hate the Germans. We both hate the mm. Ottoman Empire. We both hate the 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 darky Arabs. So <laughs> let's all get together. <laughs> we're, you know, we're right, both no. related. Yeah, we yeah, know yeah, that yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. The royal families of Russia and the United Kingdom and Germany, for that matter, they're all related. Right. But yeah. they got together. Great Britain promised to stay out of northern Persia, the bit that's bordered um, Russia. Right, makes sense. They say, okay, you take the north, we'll right. take the south. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Russia promised promised to stay out of Tibet and Afghanistan. Right. Uh, the, the agreement said that it would allocate the north, including Isfahan, to Russia, the southeast, especially Kerman, Sistan, and Baluchistan, to Britain, and demarcate the remaining land between the two powers as a neutral zone. Right. Can I ask a question, please? So what you're telling me is that a representative of Britain, a representative mm-hmm. of Russia, and a representative mm-hmm. of Iran sat down at a table and they uh, all... Uh, 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 what, let, me, let, me, no? let me, let me, let me, oh. let me, let me pause right? it right there. Oh, um, oh. I'm sorry. Uh, you're almost, almost correct, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> right? almost correct. Two out of three? Uh, the, the, fun, <laughs> the fundamental mistake that you're making there, Ray, is yes. why... On God's green earth, <laughs> would we invite a smelly Arab to the negotiating table about their own country? I, what, you know, what, what, we, when you put it like why that, why would we do that? <laughs> I want to apologize to you. That was a stupid question on my what, part. I'm what sorry. school of diplomacy did you go to? <laughs> the one of Jesus no. Christ? Oh, no. Everybody's Look, fair? Yeah. Jesus yeah. hated the Arabs as much as anybody. <laughs> And the Jews. I pulled something. What was that? Uh, he was an Arab Jew. Oh, for, don't, 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 don't worry about that. Bit. It's complicated. It's complicated. Is is this like the Treaty of Tordesillas, where Spain and Portugal pretty much divided the world between them, and the Pope said, "No, that sounds like a good plan." I mean, these two yeah. literally sat down, made an agreement about a third party, and then after that went, "Okay, Iran." Here's the official announcement we'd like to make yeah. as it affects you. I think we should. Oh, by tell the way, you. we. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we mentioned this, but we just organised <laughs> your future for you. Um, here's how it's going to work. Oh well, not just God. Persia, Afghanistan, Tibet didn't get a say in it. Right, like Munich. Um, yeah, yeah. In return for the Russians agreeing to this, London agreed to loan them some money, gave, give them some political support, and different things that were going on, but. Of course, yeah, the, the Persians got no say in the matter, Not, not neither the Shah nor the Majlis, the parliament. Right. And so they now find that, you know, imagine you wake up as an Iranian yeah, on a, yeah. and as the Shah, hey, I'm the king, really. Yeah. Um, of what? Find out these two major powers have determined your future yes. and yeah. they're going to send troops in just to make sure that you read the document carefully. <laughs> when the treaty formalizing the whole thing went before the British Parliament to get ratified. Here we go. One of the very few dissenting members of Parliament 
said that it left Iran, quote, lying between life and death, parceled out, almost dismembered, helpless and friendless at our feet. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. But of course, the Americans stood up uh, very loudly and complied. No, 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 they, no, they didn't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that was the alternative history book that you've been reading. Mm. Uh, mm. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Again, if they had been so, a little lighter, you know, we would have been all over that. But like you said, sun making them dark. We can't help. Yeah. If if you're dark, there's mm. got to be a rhyme here. If mm. you're dark. Oh, shit, I'll think about it. Anyway, mm. but you know what I'm saying. If you ain't white, you ain't, you ain't in the right. <laughs> in February 1908, uh, right. two bombs were thrown at Muhammad Ali's cavalcade. Well, that's not good. At least four people were killed, and the Royal Automobile, one of the right. first cars in Iran, was damaged, but the Shah somehow managed to escape unharmed. Allah? There were... There were, you know, radicals in the country uh, that were calling for the end of the Shah, the 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 rise of democracy, right? And you know, so this is 1908, right? Mm-hmm. Revolutions are happening in lots of different parts of the world. So it's the second phase of nationalist revolutions after the we had them in yes. the 18th century in the United States and in France. Now there's the second wave of nationalist revolutions happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, there's the Russian Revolution of 1905, a.k.a. the first Russian Revolution, or as Vladimir Lenin called it, the Great Dress Rehearsal. Ooh, I like that. It, it resulted – it wasn't successful, but it did result in the October Manifesto and the Russian Constitution of 1906. They didn't achieve much. But they, you know, they they led the way for the real revolution 11 years later. It was the first taste of revolution the Russians had. Yeah. So the Iranians are watching this. Uh, there's the Young Turks movement going on in Istanbul in the Ottoman Empire, where the Young Turks in 1908 managed to force the Sultan there, Abdul Hamid II, to reinstate their constitution of 1876 and call a parliament. So there's revolutionary inspiration coming from Russia, coming from Turkey, their yeah. neighbours, Iran. The, the Iranians are getting revolutionary pamphlets from these countries, making their way uh, into Persia. They're right. also, you know, writing their own pamphlets. They've got their own activists, journalists, uh, writing stuff, urging people to rise up and take control of their own country. Um, but the Shah has got this thing called the Cossack Brigade. Yeah. It's a Russian brigade, basically the Imperial Guard, effectively. Back <laughs> right. Think, yeah. of, think of Augustus. Um, run by a Russian commander, Colonel mm-hmm. Vladimir Lyakov. Good name. And Lyakov convinces the Shah that, look, we've just been through this in Russia, man. Yeah. We, we've had, yeah. we've got revolutionaries over there as well. Let me tell you. That's right. Uh, from my own experience, <clears throat> the mm-hmm. only way to deal with this shit is to shut this shit down. Hard. You got to cut You ever hard. heard of Napoleon? Yeah. You ever heard of the whiff of grape shot? <laughs> got to roll the cannons into the city yeah. square into Paris, man, yes. and just shoot the motherfuckers because right. that's, the, that's only the only way. way. You got to take that's control the of the situation. Have you ever heard Sean Connery go, He this is the Chicago way. He comes with a knife. You come with a gun. You got to take their asses out. Either take them out 
or they're gonna take you out. And I don't know how he to comes say with that. A gun. You come with a bomb. A b- yes, a bigger gun. He comes with a bomb. Oh, here we go. You come with an atom bomb. He comes with an atom bomb. You come with a hydrogen bomb. He comes with a hydrogen bomb. Yes. Well, yeah. then you're fucked, Miss Money Penny. Miss Money Penny. Then hug him because that way you can both die. But see, even before the the Cossacks get involved, and you're right, this is gonna. This is not only the only modern force in the entire country. It's like you said. It, it supports the. Uh, it supports the Russians. Uh, it supports the um, the Shah as well. But but the Shah, the young Shah, has already been uh, harassing people. He in June of 1908. I don't think this was the Cossacks, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, because they, they're more of just a show up and shoot. But he had toughs running through the streets of Tehran going, we want the Koran. We don't want a constitution. Now, I don't know much how you have to pay someone or how stupid they have to be to basically go, we want to be ruled by religious people. We don't want our freedoms, which is pretty much what they're saying. But the point is there is literally fighting in the streets because the Majlis and their supporters, even though they're shaken by the death of the father, they are not wanting to give up. Uh, and so they're fighting back. So there's literally fighting in the streets. There was fight. We'll be fighting in the streets. The street. <laughs> People at our feet. <laughs> no, that's not how it goes. <laughs> it's how it goes now. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you got the who. You got, a, you got a group of black girls backing up the who. Like, like a R&B I band. Even, I've even got coordinated <laughs> dance moves. <laughs> jazz hands anyway where were we sorry 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 yeah so the shah's got thugs running through the streets and then he ordered the cossack brigade to attack the building where the majlis was meeting the parliament meeting in this beautiful old building they start bombarding it and attacking it uh then the troops sort of go on this campaign in the streets of rape and pillage killing people in the neighborhoods around the Marjlis, uh basically just to terrify the bejesus out of, uh, which is not easy when it's a, a Muslim that you're attacking, uh, <laughs> terrify the B- B- Muhammad out of all of these people. <laughs> now, this wasn't quite the end of the Marjlis. They survived sort of as a rump body, but they were under the constant threat of violence. The Shah yes. basically said, listen, Fucking step out of line, and right. they're going to c- c- come in and you know kill you all. I'll do you, mate. Yeah, right. Yeah. But riots broke out in the streets, mostly in a place called Tabriz, which was uh, like the largest city in Iran at the time, and right. it was the the former capital of Iran. Mm. Um, and lots of it's where the palace used to be before they moved it to Tehran. Mm. Uh, it looked like it was going to turn into a full-on civil war. And over the course of the next year, 1908, 1909, thousands of people died in conflicts yes. between revolutionaries and, you know, the, the Cossack Brigade and the, right. the royalists uh, and, the, and the mullahs that were supporting them. Mm-hmm. But then, as I said, in 1908, um, the the Young Turks had their success in Istanbul. So there's a lot of uh, motivation to keep going. We can win if we if we persist at this. Yeah. And then, of course, I didn't even mention Japan's victory against the Russians in 1904 and the Russo-Japanese War. The right. British 
colonial army had suffered a series of defeats in the Boer War in the early 1900s. So it showed, like, between those things and the Young Turks in Turkey, it showed Mm. that revolutions could succeed uh, or or could make gains anyway, even if the one in Russia hadn't completely succeeded yet. It showed that these two great imperial powers that were supporting the Shah, the British and the the Russians, Mm -hmm. could be defeated by, you know, smaller countries, smaller powers. They weren't invulnerable. So the flip side of of this, of course, is both Russia and Britain had already suffered some losses in the early 1900s, and they were damn sure they weren't (laughs) going to lose Iran. Right. Now, they they saw, as I said earlier, the, the democratic movement in Iran as being a threat to their interests. I found this article in the London Daily Telegraph. It's from the 25th of March, 1909. It's about um, comments being made in the British Parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Lynch of the right. Labour Party directed attention to the unrest in Persia. No one, he said, would deny the gravity of the situation. But few recognised how directly it affected British interests. Persia was our next-door neighbour, and she fell into the hands of a great military power like Russia, and we would have to defend a frontier which offered no natural obstacle. Now, I'm reading this, and I thought, neighbour, Iran? Yeah. Uh, how the fuck does that work? Has the map changed since <laughs> Maybe, yeah. It, was a, was... it used to be a jigsaw puzzle, uh, <laughs> right. and someone put Did it together have... correctly. Yeah, yeah. Did they have a different map? And then I read on and he said, we would then be face to face with conscription or with the possibility of having to write off the Indian Empire. I was like, oh, Oh, our our next door neighbor neighbor to India. Because we run India. Yeah, it's ours too. It's ours too. They thought of Iran as their neighbor because they controlled India. And that's why it's important to them. It's part of the conduit. To get to Absolutely. India is you you want to go through Iran if you right. look at it it's on the, the map. It's the crown jewel. And, and you were saying that um, yeah, Britain and Russia have had their own setbacks. They the locals see this and they they think it's possible now because of Britain and Russia's interests. They're certainly encouraging the Shah. Oh no, like you said, like you said, you got to you got to bust some heads. You got to get in there and keep fighting the good fight. But the Majlis wouldn't stop either. And uh, I, I don't want to go too far ahead. So they, there's one move that they're going to make, a financial move, which is is not um, out and out fighting in the streets. So they're trying everything they can. But, yeah, there are, there are very vicious clashes in the street. Like you said, it's just the, the law, there is no law. It's pretty much just broken down. Iran is currently the Wild West of the world because it's just fighting all over the place. And it gets escalated in April 1909. The Russians, with the tacit approval of the British, mm-hmm. march forces into Tab- Tabriz. Ooh, shit. They were able to shut down the revolutionary troubles there. Right. But not a good look for the Shah. You know, when you have foreign troops on your soil. Yeah, yeah, not good. Not doing your good. bidding. Right. Never Ag- a good look. Against your own people. For the love of all that is yeah. holy. Come on. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, in April yeah. 1909, uh, a strongly worded Anglo-Russian memorandum was delivered to the Shah. Right. Basically telling him that unless he restored the constitution mm-hmm. and removed its enemies from his court, he stood to lose the 
support of Britain and Russia. Oh shit! That he'll get his ass whipped if the big guns leave the country. Well, yeah, but they basically like they helped him shut it down, right? But then basically said, "Listen, you need to <laughs> you, you, you need this. to resolve this. Yes. You need to restore the constitution." Now, as I said earlier, they didn't want democracy in right. Iran because it was contrary to their interests. But yeah. it gets to a point where they realize that. Yeah. If you don't um, pacify the people by giving them a, a taste of freedom, right? This thing is going to escalate out of control, and, and we can't we can't support you. They realised that the Shah had no power; he'd sort of lost control. He was useless. Yeah. yeah, they. It's not that they wanted to get rid of the Shah, the British and the Russians. This is right, but they wanted it stabilised. Like if you're if you're mm-hmm. investing in looking for oil, if you're investing in the tobacco industry, if you're investing in the the cotton industry, the Persian rug industry, if you've stitched up the economy of a country and you've invested money in it, you don't want fighting in the streets. You don't want people threatening your merchants, killing your merchants. You want stable trade to go on. So they're like, you need to shut this shit down and, you know, don't don't give up your power, but give them enough so they shut the fuck up and go yeah. back to work. And it looks bad. Uh, if I can just, on a world stage, one, the Shah cracking his own people's skulls and Britain and Russia helping, it, it, not, not a good look. Not, it makes the job of the PR department quite cumbersome, if I may. Bad I, I don't think the British gave too much of a shit about the PR, well, uh, no, quite but honestly, which, in these days. But no. I know, I know what you're saying on the international stage, but some of the things that you've read over the last couple of episodes, there were there were people on the left in the House of Commons who were quite happy to use issues like Iran, Persia, to hold the uh, conservatives' feet to the fire. So again, this is something like you said: let's give them a little something, let's calm everybody down, and let's get back to what making money, because that's why I'm here in the first place. Besides the looting and the raping, I'm here to make money. So let's let's. Tamp this down. We're the ones that are supposed to be doing the looting and the raping. Right. (laughs) This position has been filled, but thank you for your time. Here's my business card. I'm the head of the looting and raping department. I'm the real deal. (laughs) I can't believe it. We're doing it on scale, motherfucker. We're doing it. Industrial. Oh, my God. We're going to. to Industrial rape and pillage. Anyway. But a few months after this, in July of 1909, about 3,000 pro-Constitution forces marched from Tabriz, where they'd been shut down by the Russians, to Tehran, Mm. where there were no Russians, deposed the Shah and re-established the Constitution. They had some minor skirmishes with some Russian and government forces there, but overcame them. And so on the 16th of July 1909, the parliament voted to place Muhammad Ali's 11-year-old son, Ahmad Shah, mm-hmm. on the throne and forced Muhammad Ali to take his butterfly and his bee <laughs> and abdicate. Right. Yeah. So it's either that or – at one point – and tell me, I, I read this, but I couldn't find anything more on it. At one point during this when it got really ugly in Tehran – 
didn't the Shah Ali have to go hide in the Russian delegation and the Russian embassy or whatever the proper uh, term is? I'd read they had literally had to go run and hide. And so I'm not surprised if very soon after that, they're like, yeah, you got to go. You've, you've made a kerfuffle of this. It's time for you to go and let's put your very experienced 12 year old son on the throne. Because if anything, history shows things work out really well when you put really young people in charge of countries. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, if we've learned anything. <laughs> Caligula, Nero, mm. you know, it's just, mm. it's just, it's just, it'd be popping. Anyway, no. Children so. in positions of unlimited power <laughs> always works out well. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah. Well, in, in this time, Muhammad Ali didn't just go hide in the Russian legation. He went and hid in Russia, in Odessa, actually, oh. which then was part of Russia. Right. He wasn't giving up, though. He plotted his return to power. We'll see that a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the discipline of the revolutionary forces was pretty impressive. When they took control of Tehran, there was no looting. There was no revenge killing. There was no retaliation. Mm. They just got down to business. Now, the Russians and the British were, even though they'd sort of warned the Shah that they might withdraw support from if he couldn't bench it down, this this is not good. No. Um, they, they, this is a threat to their interests. They're very unhappy about the whole thing. The right. foreign media, the, the Times in London, the New York Times as well, were all outraged mm-hmm. that the Iranians would rise up and take control <laughs> of their country. How dare the Americans, you, sir? Right. Americans Sorry. were like, you know what? We can't stand revolutions <laughs> that, that overthrow a monarchy. Like that's just... Like there was a window, right? But where again, that was acceptable. Closed. But that's passed. It's closed. closed. Nailed yeah, shut, yeah. son. <laughs> anyway, you missed you missed the bus. Yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, sorry. Where were um, we? Yeah. The fact that the Iranians, uneducated, mm-hmm. uh, no experience in these sorts of things, could resist professional m- imperial military-backed powers and, uh, you know, kick them out and establish their own government was not going to be acceptable to the major Western powers. Yeah. But anyway, there was a national election. The second Majlis convened in November 1909. Mm -hmm. But it was not great. I mean, it was riddled with factionalism, ideological rifts, uh, foreign intimidation, which is actually quite normal when you look at any fledgling democracy yes. that's fighting for survival. Yes. There's always going to be factions. There's always going to be foreign powers trying to influence yeah. and bribe certain representatives who vote this way, vote that way, put this into place, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, you know, and, and like every fledgling democracy, these people had no experience with yeah. self-government. Brand new. It always bugs the fuck out of me when we see these countries, like in the Middle East or in um, Africa, that were run by colonial powers up until World War II. All of a sudden, it's 1950. The imperial powers uh, don't have the wherewithal, and and it's a bad look after World War II to continue to oppress these countries. So they go, all right, we're going to back out. And then these people with no experience in democracy, uh, all of a sudden – you know, kind of make a hash of it for a few decades, 
fighting Absolutely. amongst each other and there's yeah. again always foreign manipulation and intimidation going on right and then in the western media we go oh look at these people they don't know oh, how to work. they couldn't they couldn't they... organize a fucking a brothel <laughs> and we're like well you know go and have a look at british democracy uh the early century that right. look at the first century of america's democracy you still had you had a fucking civil war a hundred yes. years later you know it was because of the tensions and the whole deal like it's it, it's messy establishing yes. a functional yes. democracy is always messy and but we tend we tend to forget that it was it took centuries in the west for us to get some sort of well, right. not to say that our democracies are great now but some sort of functional system yeah. where we're not stability killing each other every week right right yeah yeah uh so the next few years there were 11 changes of prime minister oh my god um, and reshuffling of the cabinets they tried to bring about reforms, right? Uh, which the British and the Russians didn't like. Uh, it's a big mess. But then, mm-hmm. in 1911, the Marjleys hired an American banker, William Morgan Schuster, yeah, to come in and be their treasurer general. What do you know about William Morgan Schuster? Oh, pra- practically nothing. But but what I do like, uh, and you can certainly give us background, is that we've been talking about them fighting in the streets, trying to outdo each other in blood. We're here, and again, because the entire reason the British and the Russians are here are financial and uh, obviously foreign um, uh, diplomacy, uh, so they can get to India. But but the the, the Hamajlis, uh hire this guy. He's got a lot of experience. And what he starts to do, and I'll just say this and then you can take over because you've probably got more on him. But one of the first things that he does when he gets in there, he's just like, there's official deals. There's official um uh, yeah, there's official deals between us and other countries and different parts of Iran, but then there's all the backroom deals. That's where the real power is at. That's where the real money's at. That's where the real influence is at. And what Morgan is going to start doing is he's going to start trying to undo all these more secretive, lucrative, unfair backroom deals. And as you can imagine, that is literally kicking over the hornet's nest. And Russian and British hornets, hornets do not like that very much. But what yeah, else do you know and- about them? Yeah, a little bit, but up until I wanted to make the point, up until that mm. time, 1911, mm-hmm. America had been reluctant to get involved in Iran. They didn't want to get uh, tread on the toes, I guess, of the sort of Anglo-Russian zones of influence. Yeah. And I think we need to see Schuster's involvement through the lens of uh, America's open-door policy. You know, we've talked about this on this show a long time ago, but it was at the, around the same time, mm-hmm. late 1900s, um, sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s, where the US is trying to figure out how to dismantle these foreign blocks, economic blocks that the British, the Russians, the Germans yeah. have Empires. Spanish. Empires. Yeah. They have the Spanish-American War. They take over the Philippines, the Americans. They take over Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're trying to figure out how do we get access to these markets? Because again, just to remind people, America's economy was having like a recession, uh, a yeah. major recession every five to 10 years. They they knew they needed export markets, but the export markets were all locked down by the yeah. great seafaring powers of the 1600s and 1700s, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the marit- great maritime powers, which America hadn't been. So 
this is part of that. This is part of America trying to figure out how do we wet our beak in these right. countries. Right. But so Schuster goes in. Um, he had been a customs collector mm. for the U.S. government, served in the United States military government in Cuba in 1899, right. um, and then in the Philippines, which was an American colony at the time. Right. So he had been directly involved in dismantling imperial trading blocks in these countries oh. and figuring out how the Americans could lock that shit down. <laughs> um, you know, but right? in this case, so, they're not sending an army in. They're no. just sending in the tax man. An army of one. And yeah. he's good at deconstructing. That is fucking brilliant. That is good. That's how you do it. What's the what's the line from The Godfather about a man with a briefcase? Oh. Um, it's from the book, I think, not the film. One right. lawyer with a briefcase can steal more than 100 men with guns. <laughs> That's so true. Mario Puzzo. That's so true. Yeah. And nothing's changed. Yeah. So, so they're that, sending... That's so America's the, the, tip of the dagger. The, um, yeah. The, the, the Iranian delegation in Washington... Right. Asked them, supposedly, uh, you know anyone who can help us out? And they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got a guy. I got a Billy. guy. Yeah. Billy Schuster, man. He's yeah. your guy. <laughs> Let me get him on the Rolodex here. Here we go. I'll so call him goes, for you right he, now. He goes mm-hmm. to Tehran and he sets to sets, gets to work dismantling all of these tax exemptions and backroom deals that yeah. Russia and Britain had been using to loot Iran. Mm. But again, and yeah. I, I read his book because he wrote a book about this um, after he got kicked out a year later. Right. Uh, I don't – this guy's no hero. He's not doing this because he's <laughs> the hero of Iran. <laughs> um, he's doing this so America can get yes. him on the action. He's representing yeah. the American business elite. Oh, yeah. And this is they're figuring out how to dismantle these systems in the name of freedom. This is the beginning of Americans working out, oh, right. shit, we don't need to send an army in. No. We can no. just go, whoa, what yeah. about freedom? Yeah. Hey, freedom. <laughs> Freedom-loving people. Freedom. <laughs> By freedom, we mean our freedom right. to take your shit. You yes. know, we want to take, come in and take the your dollar. shit. Exactly, yeah. Now, the, the British and the Russians weren't asleep at the wheel here. They could see what was going on. They yeah. demanded that he be given the fucking boot. Yeah. The Marjleys refused. So in 1911, yet again, right. with the agreement right. of the British, the yeah. Russians sent in troops to get rid of Schuster yeah. and bed down the whole operation that the young Shah yeah. was allowing to get fucked up. Yeah. Now, they were all surprised because, again, yeah. theoretically, putting an 11-year-old in charge of a country <laughs> should have been a great idea. <laughs> They're like, where I don't did we see, go wrong? I don't see the downside. I, I they had, they really, had, a, yeah, they had yeah. a big board up with, like, red <laughs> wool tying pins and right? photos. Oh, They're yeah. like, where, yeah, I, I can't yeah, understand yeah. I can't where find we went wrong here. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, eleven-year-old yeah. Shah. Yeah. Uh, that's good, everything. right? Yeah. That's okay, right? Yeah. Yeah. Has he reached puberty yet, or is that a factor? And okay, I'm getting sidetracked. Well, like you've said right? about 
your nieces once they reach puberty they're too oh, old like it's, it's too late it's, you know it's, it's, you're wasting your yeah. time yeah yeah yes yeah. so the so the fall of 1911, the Russian troops come in, but the Majlis are, are like, no, not again. We're going to stand up to you. Now, one side has a professional modern army, the other one not so much. So not going to go well. But the point is they've tasted freedom. Well, freedom is too strong a word. They've tasted representative government, and they don't want to give up without a fight. So they fight. Not that it goes well for them. No, yeah, they fight and they lose. So, yes. and then check this out. So, yes. as an example of international bullying, right? Russia and Britain deliver an ultimatum to Iran in 1911 mm-hmm. to immediately fulfill three conditions or else face right. Russian military occupation. God dang, right? They had to get rid of Morgan Schuster sure. along with the rest of his team that he brought over, get rid of all the Americans. Yeah. They demanded that in the future the Iranian government would agree to not engage the service of foreign nationals without the consent of Russia and Britain. Whoa. Okay. And they demanded that the Iranian government pay indemnity for the expense (laughs) of the present dispatch of troops, the amount to be determined later. By Moscow. We're going to, effectively, we're going to come in and take over your entire country. Right. Unless you agree to pay us an open check for having had to go to the trouble to push troops in your country in the first place, get rid of the Americans and swear on a Bible or Quran of your choosing to never involve foreigners again without our express approval. Right. Or we'll send in more troops and yes, you will have to pay for their travel expenses as well. And they would like a healthy per diem. Thank you very much. Mm. So uh, the Russians come in. A lot of the um, modulists are arrested with the ones that are still alive and ones that are not beat up. And um, yeah, so they come in and they crack skulls. And this representative government is shattered. It is suffering. Their representatives are in jail. And as you can imagine, the people who voted for them are now cowering in their homes. And the Russians aren't fucking around this time. They send in 20,000 troops by early 1912. No warning shots. Yeah. Occupy the entirety of the northern provinces of Iran. Mm -hmm. And for the next five years, just go on a campaign of terror and violence keeping a hold on the northern half of the country. It's kind of over here. yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of similarities between that and what's going on in Ukraine today, right, mm-hmm. 110 years later. Basically, the Russians are going, listen, uh, we want, we don't want the Americans running right. a, na- a state that's uh, on our doorstep. Yes. That's not good for us. We don't like no. that. Bad that's juju. a threat to our interests. So... Yeah. We're going to come in and take over the buffer zone between our country and your country. We're going to create a buffer zone, basically, right? Um, which is the Donbass region now in Ukraine. Exactly mm-hmm. the same thing was happening 110 years ago. Um, so then uh, in December 1911, anyway, as this is all ramping up, yeah, the uh, premier of Iran, who's a Bakhtiari, 
uh, ordered that the newly formed Homayun Regiment right. uh, occupy the Majlis, expel all the deputies from the premises and mm. close the gates. The deputies were threatened with death if they attempted to meet anywhere else. Right. So December 1911, the Shah shuts down yeah. the Majlis uh, and Morgan Schuster and his American team are kicked out of the country. Yeah. So for the representative government, the Shah, even though still a very young boy, is able to hang a closed sign on their door. So the Iran's first constitution, the revolution, everything that made this moment possible is now under a Russian boot because it has been crushed. Uh, Morgan Schuster goes back to America and writes a book in 1912 called The Strangling of Persia, which I read. Ooh, nice. And here's how he paints it. Now, again, uh, I, I want to make this really clear. This guy was working for the Americans to yes. establish America's interests in this region. So, so but he makes it that. sound like, right. as Americans do, he makes his mission sound very noble, makes himself sound like the friend of the Iranians. Um, anyway, he dedicated his book to the Persian people, and he says in the uh, opening of it, who by their unwavering belief under difficult and forbidding circumstances employed him to help with the task of the reorganisation of their nation. He said he was extremely disappointed at being forcibly deprived of the opportunity to, to opportunity to finish this intensely interesting task in that ancient land where two powerful and presumably enlightened Christian countries played fast and loose with truth, honour, decency and law, one at least, hesitating not even at the most barbarous cruelties to accomplish its political designs and to put Persia beyond hope of self-reorganisation. And then he made Aww. a plea to his American readers. He said, The yeah. constitutionalists of modern Persia will not have lived, struggled, and in many instances died entirely in vain if the destruction of Persian sovereignty shall have sharpened somewhat the civilised world's realisation of the spirit of international brigandage which has marked the Welt politic of the year 1911. Wow. And, of course, 40 years later, the Americans went in and overthrew the democratic government of Iran and reestablished yeah. the, the uh, kingdom of the Shah. But <laughs> basically he's like, listen. Yeah. I was there for a noble but reason. Yeah, let's not let's not let others have all the fun over there. No, we, uh, yes, we, we need to get yes. involved as well. He also wrote this um, that the Persians were unskillful in the practical politics and in the technique of representative constitutional government. No one could deny, but that they had the full right to develop along particular lines of their customs, character, temperament, and tendencies is equally obvious. Mm. Five years is nothing in the life of a nation. It is not even long as a period for individual reform. Wow. Yet after a bare five years of effort, during which the Persian people, with all their difficulties and harassed by the so-called friendly powers, succeeded in thwarting a despot's well-planned effort to wrest from them their hard-earned liberties, the world is told by two European nations that these men were unfit, dangerous, 
and incapable of producing a stable and orderly form of government. He says that Iran was the hapless victim of the wretched game of cards, which a few European powers with the skill of centuries of practice still play with weaker nations as the stake and the lives, honour and progress of whole races as the forfeit. Now, that's that's lovely. Um, (laughs) But again, America went in 40 years later and did exactly the same thing. And he was alive when that happened. He died in 1960. Right. Um, Unfortunately, I don't have... um, any comments from him after what happened in 1953 or whether or not he was even aware of America's role in it because obviously it was uh, classified yeah. at the time. Yeah. He entered publishing when he got back to the US, became the, cent- the president of Century Publishing in New York, mm. and he led that uh, until his death, by which time it was known as Appleton Century Crofts. Right. His daughter, Miss Carolyn Schuster, made front page news in the New York Times by attempting to elope at age 17 with William Redding Morris, then 18. Sure. Though the elopement was at first foiled, the couple married a short while later over Schuster's objections. The guy wants the Iranians to have freedom. Yeah. But uh, my my daughter. No. 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 No freedom. Yeah. No soup for you. I'm I'm tolerant of the darker people having some freedom, but definitely not my daughter. I think you're fine. Yes, yeah. If I could I just say, I know we're go- love go to ahead. have known what his what what his thoughts were about yes. 1953, yeah. but I, I yeah I don't think he knew about it. No, but if but if you could have went up, you know, time machine Tardis could have went up to him, whispered him, the Americans did that because the British were pissed that they weren't getting the oil. What do you say? America, you know, who the fuck knows? Because he was probably a patriot. But yeah, we did the exact same thing. For me, I know we're going to wrap up soon. The great irony here is that for the last 100, 150 years, the people of Persia have been fighting because they want the rule of law, not for some lofty goal, but for the simple fact that it's their belief that it will begin the process to raise them out of poverty. That's pretty much what were the, I mean, you, you don't want to be told what to do, but basically the generation, and I think we covered this on a previous episode, generation after generation is just poor, just barely getting by. Obviously, some people are doing well, but the masses are suffering and they literally want to become more modern so they can one day maybe not be poor. And again, if you could go into the future and go, if you could go into the past and go, democracy, yeah, it's pretty cool, but stay away from capitalism. That will fuck you up. And not that it matters, because like you just said, America went in, overturned the cart, and now they are ruled instead of um, ruling themselves. So, America. Yeah. Fuck it. Anyway, Schuster wasn't the only Western critic. There was this guy called Edward Granville Brown, whose book wow. I read. He was uh, an English scholar, uh, an Iranologist, he was called. He was the professor okay. of Arabic at Cambridge. Nice. During this whole period of revolution, he kept up uh, correspondence with the major players in Iran. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a book called The Persian Revolution of 1905 to 1909 was published in 1910. Right. He, he's he's apparently well-remembered in Iran. There's a street still named after him in Tehran, as well as a statue which mm-hmm. survived the Iranian Revolution of 1979. 
Anyway, in the introduction to this book, he writes, Suppose I have a beautiful garden filled with flowers of innumerable kinds, which I love, and which fills me with gladness and pride. And suppose some utilitarian, utilitarian bids me dig up and cast away these beautiful flowers and plant the garden with potatoes or cabbages or even with one kind of beautiful flower only on the ground that I shall thereby make more money or produce a more useful crop. I cannot Mm. argue with him. I can only oppose him with all my strength. And when people say, as unhappily many people in this country do say, that Persia is a backward country, which in the hands of its own people cannot be developed or only very slowly, and that the best thing that can happen is that some European power, whether England or Russia, should step in and develop it, whether its people like it or not, I feel as I do about the flower garden, that no material prosperity, no amount of railways, mines, jails, gas or drainage can compensate the world spiritually and intellectually for the loss of Persia. And this is what the occupation and administration of Persia by foreigners would inevitably mean if it endured long. And experience shows that temporary occupations of the territories of weak peoples by great European powers can only be called temporary in the sense that they will presumably not be eternal. (laughs) You have to zoom out. You got to zoom way the fuck out so you can call them temporary. You know, a couple hundred years, whatever. In uh, July of 1911, Muhammad Ali landed back in Persia, tried to retake the throne from his son. Oh, how'd that go? He had a couple of thousand Turkish guys with him, marched towards Tehran. He thought if Napoleon can do it (laughs) after leaving Elba, surely it can't be that hard. He he was French. Um, Corsican, really. Right. Didn't work out well. His forces were defeated. Um, now, Schuster was still there at the time, and he got the government to issue a public warrant for Muhammad Ali, dead or alive. God dang. Setting a prize of 100,000 tumans or $237,000. Muhammad Ali's forces were captured and shot. He returned to Russia. And then right. in 1920, he went to Constantinople and then later to San Remo in Italy, where he died on the 5th of April, 1925. Like every Shah after him, he died in exile. Right. So young Ahmed is still the Shah. And when he turned 16 in 1914, Ahmed yeah. Shah was formally crowned on the 21st of July, seven days before the outbreak of World War I. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you celebrate a birthday. Either becoming Shaw or World War, either one or both, whatever. It's all good. Oh, really? For my birthday, you <laughs> gave me? me a World oh, War? Thank you. Wow, I would have yeah. been happy with 1,500 wives. <laughs> Uh, that I don't now, have to talk to him because I'm still a kid. Go ahead. I'm going to finish with this because World War One, uh, along with the discovery of oil, World War One played a major role in uh, Iran's future. Okay. Now, Iran declared neutrality, but most Iranians secretly hoped the Germans would win. Right. And, and liberate them from the Russians and the British. Yeah. 
the, the Iranians kind of admired Germany. Uh, Bismarck had had you know unified Germany, right. and and they'd become sort of a, a great power. Mm-hmm. Were becoming a great power. The, the Iranians looked at that as another source of inspiration. They got the Russian Revolution and the defeats of the British and the Turks, and they they, they really admired the Germans. Yeah, and the Germans beat the crap out of the French in order to become a unified country. So all good, son. All good. All good. Yeah. Uh, now, during World War One, obviously <laughs> the Russians had their second revolution, right? And the Bolsheviks seized power in 1917. One of the first things that they did yeah. was renounce all of their rights in Iran, cancelled <gasps> all of the debts that oh, Iran wow. owed to Tsarist Russia. Love the Bolsheviks. Love the Bolsheviks. <laughs> yeah. Bo- good guy. Good guy, Bolsheviks. They were like, guys, uh, yeah. so sorry What's for what was done <laughs> by our Tsars. Wasn't us. <laughs> no. Please. Clean slate. Have your freedom. Have with, your freedom. Yeah. yeah. Go with Lenin. Don't owe us anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we don't believe in God, but, yeah. you know, yeah. go with science. Right. <laughs> uh, and the Iranians <laughs> went, oh, man, that's so nice of you, Russia. Thank you so much. Yeah. They turned to Britain and said, uh, you're going to do the same thing? Yeah. 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 Quid, look quid, look quid, at the Russians. Quid. You're not going to let the Russians show you up, are you? And the British went, Oh, they're gone. Fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) The British, on the other hand, were complete cunts. They were at the peak of their imperial power. Yeah. And unfortunately, the Russians stepping out, yeah, Yeah. you know, to be fair, uh, the Russians had their own problems. You know, they're fighting a civil war. Um, They they don't have the the spare people to maintain a military power in Iran. It's a bit like when... The British pulled out of all of their imperial colonies after World War II. It wasn't because they were good. It wasn't because they'd finally woken <laughs> up and decided they wanted to be it. nice. Yeah, it's because they couldn't <laughs> afford it and they didn't have the spare people, the manpower. Right. right. Same thing here, to be honest. I mean, yes, yes. whether or not the Bolsheviks Selfish. wanted to maintain Iran uh, or right. not, they just couldn't afford to do it. So. Right. You know, it, it, when you can't afford to do something, the best step is to go make it look like it's a nice gesture. <laughs> yeah. Look. <laughs> look, secretly we can't afford it. We'll go, hey, listen, no, it's not that. No, we just want to be nice. No. We want to be good guys. Remember, this is a good thing that we're doing. Write that down. Yeah. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so but, Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Britain steps into the vacuum now because oil had been discovered. Pretty much. Yeah. And Winston Churchill was very fucking excited about the yes. oil. Yeah. Now, we'll get nor- into. Normally I cannot speak while I'm aroused because there's all the blood south and there's not enough north, but somehow Churchill pulled it off. And I think you might have said this on an episode or two ago when we were talking, yeah, we we're just kind of talking in general. But Churchill, when it comes to the oil out of the ground, is starting to flow out of the ground, and like you said, the Russians are gone, the British literally fill that gap. The, uh, what's what's that expression? A Brit a Britain hates a vacuum that has oil in it. Something like that. I can't remember. But they literally and they move all over the country. And they they take yeah. what the Russians had. And Churchill says, as far as this oil, it is a prize from fairyland beyond our wildest dreams. So it's the first law of British thermodynamics. <laughs> Britain deplores 
an oil gap. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Now we mentioned this in an earlier episode. William Knox Darcy uh, gets a concession for all of the oil, you know, oh, right. all of the oil he can carry. He can take yeah. out of Iran. Right. And they discovered it a few years later, and they formed this company called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. Aww. The Anglo was in large, really large <laughs> font. Um, the Persian bit was in really, really small. You had to get a magnifying glass yeah. and then put a magnifying glass on top of a magnifying <laughs> glass, and then a, a telescope had to look through the magnifying glasses right. yeah. in order to see the world Persian in there. <laughs> APOC. The right. Anglo-Persian Oil Company, otherwise oh. known today as British Petroleum, they right. eventually they just went. Let's just take the Persian bit let's right out. out. No, who take we like? Out. Let's yeah. be honest. Barry so, and Stan came in and they said, "You're not fooling anyone, yeah, yeah, really." No. Let's just so why bother? Call a, why bother? Call a call a yeah. spade a spade. Well, you made the point a second ago. In in a lot of ways, militarily, uh, or not so much. Well, military, but also their foreign uh, uh, their empire. Britain is at its peak. In a lot of ways. And now you're telling me they're about to pull out more oil from this ground that they do not own than God can possibly imagine. So money is going to flow into Britain like crazy. The The Royal Navy, which is the backbone of the British society, is going to have all the fuel that it needs. And so it is literally heyday party time for the British Empire. This is as good as it gets for them. Yeah, and in 1914, the British government acquired the majority of the APOC stock. So the government had full control, the British government had full control over exploration, production, and export of Iranian oil. Churchill, of course, at the time was first Lord of the Admiralty, as we've mentioned on earlier episodes. He was pushing for the conversion or had pushed for the conversion of the British Navy to being oil. Right. And, and now, unfortunately, up until that time, right, they they had to buy oil from what were known as the oil trusts, these international oil trusts, and they were being squeezed. Oh, particularly that. going yeah. into World War One. Right. It was supply and demand issue. Good, Everyone good wanted point. oil, price went up. Prices had doubled, in fact. Oh my and God. the the idea of Britain having their own Massive supply of oil was this prize from Fairyland that uh, Churchill mentioned. Oh, now, gotcha. keep that in mind. Right. Forty years later, when right. he's the prime minister again, his second mm-hmm. round, and they're about to lose his prize oh, from Fairyland. Not Fairyland. And how he he refuses yeah. to let yeah. that go. But the point of this, the British government now controls the stock in APOC. It's not a private company. Mm-hmm. That Iran has to fight with now if they want control of the oil. It's the British Empire now that owns all of right. the oil in Iran. Yes, that's who they're dealing with. Exactly. And the the, now, the, deck, the deck is stacked against them, and that's the way the British want it. After World War One in 1919, mm-hmm. the British imposed a new agreement on Iran. It's called the Anglo-Persian Agreement. They imposed this on the oh, young Shah. That sounds nice bribed the Iranian negotiators <laughs> to make right. sure that uh, it worked in their favour. Right. And under these provisions of the Anglo-Persian agreement, the British not only controlled the oil. Yeah, yeah. They had control of Iran's army, right. treasury, right. transport system, right. and communications network. God, Everything. 
everything that matters, they control. And then they opposed martial law. (laughs) Shit. And basically took over the country. Right. Lord Curzon, our old friend, who was uh, foreign secretary at the time. Right. One of the chief architects of this agreement. Mm Mm-hmm. He uh, argued that this is basically the foundational document for British policy in Iran. He wrote, If it be asked why we should undertake the task at all and why Persia should not be left to herself and Mm -hmm. allowed to rot into picturesque decay, the answer is that her (laughs) geographical position the magnitude of our interests in the country and the future safety of our Eastern Empire render yeah. it impossible for us now, just as it would have been impossible for us at any time during the last 50 years, to disinherit ourselves from what happens in Persia. Moreover, now that we are about to assume the mandate for Mesopotamia, which will make us cotominous with the Western frontiers of Asia... We cannot permit the existence between the frontiers of our Indian Empire and Baluchistan and those (laughs) of our new protectorate, a hotbed of misrule, enemy intrigue, financial chaos and political disorder. Further, if Persia were to be alone, there is every reason to fear that she would be overrun by Bolshevik influence from the north. Lastly, we possess in the southwestern corner of Persia great assets in the shape of oil fields, which are worked for the British Navy and which give us a commanding interest in that part of the world. Right. That's good. I almost feel like we should say thank you to him for doing all these wonderful things. Yeah. Basically, the end yeah. of World War One. Yeah. Britain controls Iran lock stock and two smoking barrels. <laughs> it's Iran's sovereignty is effectively gone. They're all yes. of their attempts at setting up a parliament, Hundreds self-rule, self-determination, yes. Britain comes in and crushes the whole thing. Now, yeah. the Iranians, of course, don't sit still for this. Some of them, particularly in the northern provinces, set up a communist party. Uh, but, you know, the British, you know, from what Curzon said, the British sort of see this Pax Britannica that they're trying right. to establish from India through to the Persian Gulf, mm-hmm. through to Iraq, Palestine, and Egypt. They're ba- it's basically this massive extension of the British Empire right. that's going to connect their oil interests, their interests in India and the British Raj, yeah. their new interests in Iraq and Palestine and Egypt. It's basically this whole part of the world is going to help them Secure their trade routes. It's going to help them, you know, basically run a major part of the world. There's no fucking way they're going to let that go. Winston Churchill, 1919, is the Secretary of State for War. He Mm -hmm. loved this idea as well. Good old imperialist Winston Churchill, freedom lover. And by freedom lover, I mean lover of Britain's freedom to control (laughs) the darkies. Uh He's on board with Lord Curzon's vision yeah. of Pax Britannica. Yeah. Now, I, yeah, 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 you can. I just want to say the Iranian Soviet Socialist Republic. 
I just wanted to touch on that real quick if I could. Um, yeah, they set it up in the northwest of Iran. It goes, it lasts from June 1920 until September of 1921. Uh, but it's touch and go because why? You and I have done enough shows to know that when the communists take over, they normally do one of well, they do several things. But one of the, some of the stuff that they no- normally do is one, they start teaching people how to read. Two, they start redistributing the land, i.e. they take from the rich and they Robin Hood it to the poor. Well, whoever was in charge of the Iranian side of this did not start passing out any land to the poor. So the Russians who were actually a part of this were like, no, you're not doing it right. And he's like, I got this. I got this. No, we're not going to help the poor. So it all fizzles apart. I think there was actually some fighting as well, but they ignored Socialism 101. Take from the rich give to the poor. And so so the the whole thing ends up falling apart. It could have been a toe for Russia in the future, but it falls apart. And before that, in 1917, Britain used Iran as the springboard to launch an expedition into Russia Mm. as part of their intervention in the Russian Civil War. The British were on the side of the white Army, the, the royalists, the yeah. supporters of the the czars, mm-hmm. the Romanovs. So you know, Iran. Not only this Pax Britannica, but you know, by Pax, we mean war. Uh, <laughs> what George Orwell was talking about: peace means war. Um, yes. <laughs> just to close up, though. So this is yeah. all going on. It looked for a while like. Iran could be the the staging ground for a whole new war between Britain and the USSR. But just to talk about the Iranian people for a second, at this point they are poorer than they've maybe ever been. Right. There's major famine in 1918. Mm -hmm. Then the Spanish influenza hit in 1918, 1919, which was known in Iran as the European common cold. It was spread by troops moving through their country Mm. in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, and it affected them a lot harsher than it affected other places around the world because they're in the middle of all of these troops. They've got no defense systems to yeah. protect them from it, no health care system really. Right. Um, a conservative estimate of loss of life in Iran due to the famine and the Spanish influenza exceeds a million people. Jesus. Their total population was about 9 million people. So they lost, you know, more than a tenth of their population in one year. Oh my God! Massive yeah. Uh, yeah. elimination. Yeah. Uh, and this is a country, by the way, that didn't field a single soldier in World War One, and was not allowed to bring their grievances to the table afterwards. Like no. Woodrow Wilson's Paris Peace Conference in 1918, 1919, that mm-hmm. promised self-determination for all people. The Iranians, like the Vietnamese, like Ho Chi Minh, yeah. um, you know, kind of... Were expected. Yeah, they expected. were like, oh, surf to oh, self-determination for all people. That's great. That means us, obviously, we are people. <laughs> we are people. Uh, are we? Um, but well, they were quick the to find out, like yeah. the Vietnamese, that in the no view of right. Woodrow Wilson, right. um, they Narrow were, in view. fact, people. Um <laughs> In fact, at the Paris Peace Conference, the Iranian delegation yes. was barred from even bringing its demands for recognition to the table, let alone 
compensation for the foreign occupation and the economic and human loss of life that they'd suffered during the war that they weren't even part of. Right. The British delegation argued that the Iranian case couldn't be heard in the conference mm-hmm. because Iran was not party to the war True. and therefore didn't have a place in the post-war settlement. That's some fucked up logic, but okay. Okay. You know what? So to they, me, yeah, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. They've oh, lost a tenth of their population. They've yeah. lost their sovereignty. They're not, they get no recognition in the Paris Peace Conference. Right. Completely occupied by the British at this point. Yeah. And which, by the way, is increasing the impact of the famine. You got troops, large consignments of troops oh, yeah. in the country. Yeah. The grain and, and other foodstuffs were purchased slash confiscated by British armies for consumption by their troops. Yeah. Um, after the war, there's massive inflation because oh the Russian economy had come to a complete halt because of the revolution in the Civil War. Germany's economy was in a recession after World War One. The Ottoman Empire was depressed because of their defeat in the war and their own civil war, the Young Turks mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. The yeah. only country in that region that had any sort of a functioning economy after World War One was the British, and they ran the country and wanted to keep them poor and oppressed. Right. So... And even their economy was in hyperinflation after World War One as well. They had labor revolts and they had problems in India. Yeah. So the Iranians, you know, their their exports of Persian rugs, cotton, tobacco, and opium. They're having trouble exporting that because all of the markets that they normally export it to have collapsed. Mm-hmm. Britain's then taking over large sections of Iraq, Palestine, Syria, crushing revolts everywhere. It's a very dark time for the people of Iran. And then in 1921, a new leader by the name of Reza emerges. And we're going to talk more about him in our next episode. An iron curtain has descended across the continent. 